This is the Scottish Football Citizen, bringing you the best of Scottish football from the past. I'm Andy Kerr, and this week I'll be going over my memories of Euro 2020, from the struggle in Serbia to qualify on penalties, the build-up to the big games, and being there to see it all in Glasgow. Given everything that's happened over the past year and a half, it's definitely a tournament that we're unlikely to forget anytime soon. Before we get started, here's this week's trivia. True or false? All of Scotland's goals at European Championships have been scored by players with surnames starting with Mick. We'll give you the answer at the end of the podcast. The European Championships. To me, they've always been special, with less countries competing than the World Cup. And they're a party you absolutely want to be at. Although I was born in 1991, I don't remember a lot at all about Euro 96. And my first real Euros related memories involved watching Scotland lose 2-1 on aggregate in the Euro 2000 playoff against England. Even though Don Hutchison did give us a last win at the Old Wembley under the floodlights. From there onwards, it was a barren couple of decades watching Scotland trying and ultimately failing, to make it to tournament after tournament after tournament. Even though Scotland kept on trying to make it to the biggest show on the continent, somehow the party was able to both elude us and continue without us. Strange, given the way that Scotland fans have adopted the slogan, No Scotland, No Party, over the past few years. One of my most painful memories came when attention turned to qualifying for Euro 2008, which was to be hosted by Switzerland and Austria. With Walter Smith and then Alex McLeish in charge, it looked like we were on course to qualify from a group that contained both teams from the 2006 World Cup final, Italy and France. We even managed to beat France home and away, with Gary Caldwell getting the hand in winner and James McFadden's mercurial strike winning it in the Parc de Prince. A goal that comes second only to Archie Gemmell's strike against the Dutch in 1978 in terms of greatest ever Scotland goals. It all looked like it was going so well until the second last game when we went to Georgia in a ruby coloured kit that at first I fell in love with. Only for my memories of it to be dashed as we lost to a very young Georgia side and the kit was quietly banished to the Hall of Shame for all eternity. It would all come down to one game at Hampden against the world champions, Italy. Just over a minute after the game started, Luca Toni had scored for Italy, and it was a mountain of Herculean proportions we had to climb. In the second half we had our chances, and when Barry Ferguson scored an equaliser with 25 minutes to go, Hampden went berserk. We were only one goal away from making it to the Euros, and although I was watching at a friend's house, it was as if the whole country was inside Hamden, cheering Scotland on. After 90 minutes, the game was still drawn, and Alan Hutton appeared to be fouled by one of the Italians close to our byline. The Spanish referee saw things the other way though, and awarded the Italians a free kick in a very dangerous position. 
the Mercurial Andrea Pirlo launched a free kick directly into the Scotland box where the ball met the head of Christian Panucci perfectly and there was absolutely nothing that Craig Gordon could do to stop the ball flying past his outstretched arms and into the net. A small corner of bright Italian blue celebrated wildly, but the rest of Hamden and Scotland was in total despair. In my time as a football fan, I've seen my club lose in embarrassing and excruciating circumstances, but I can honestly say that none of these times watching my club team came remotely close to how gutting this defeat was. Walking home that night, none of us could believe that we'd been robbed. Well, at least that was how we saw it at the time. It was another chapter in the book called Glorious Failure that Scotland know all too well how to write. The only slight consolation was that England had also failed to qualify for the Euros and would have to watch on TV, just like we were becoming used to doing. Euro 2012, shared between Poland and Ukraine in terms of hosting duties, saw a magnificent Spain side retain their European title that they had first lifted four years earlier. Once again, Scotland had missed out on an invite to the party, and it had now been over a decade since we'd made it to our finals. More disappointment was to follow, as we missed our invite to France in 2016, where the hosts came undone against Portugal in the final. For once, I wasn't watching the final since I'd gone off to Tea in the Park Music Festival with my friends. Maybe I was starting to buy into the no Scotland, no party narrative, knowing that I couldn't really remember seeing my country playing at the Euros in my lifetime. Back when it was announced by Michel Platini that Euro 2020 was to be held across the whole of Europe, there was a real feeling of surprise. How would this work? Would it actually work at all? This confusion was tempered with the fact that Glasgow was announced as one of the host cities and the party would be coming to Hampden Park. This was a massive incentive for Scotland to qualify, with the prospect of at least two home games with the full backing of the Tartan Army. As a new campaign of qualification came around, and many seasoned campaigners started to think, this time we'll do it. Things came to a very abrupt halt as we fell to a shock 3-0 defeat in Kazakhstan. This really was the lowest of the low. Alex McLeish lasted for one more game against San Marino before being relieved of his duties, and in came Steve Clark from Kilmarnock. His first game in charge saw Scotland leading Cyprus through an Andy Robertson strike, but disaster almost struck in the 87th minute as the Cypriots equalised. Just when everyone in Hamden was thinking of who to blame for squandering their slender lead, Ollie Buck managed to score after hitting the post at first, and it was a winning start to the Clark era. Heavy back-to-back defeats against Russia and Belgium home and away followed, and so did our hopes of getting to the Euros in the traditional way. However, a shot at redemption was about to come from a very unlikely source indeed. The Nations League, a competition invented partly to prevent meaningless friendlies during international breaks, was about to come to our rescue. As we had finished top of our group in it, we had earned a spot in the playoffs that could take us to the Euros. All we had to do was win two games in quick succession and we were home and dry. 
We were drawn against Israel at home and either Norway or Serbia away from home if we could get past Israel. Just as Hamden was preparing for a sellout crowd, the whole world ground to a halt as the coronavirus pandemic took hold. Everything was cancelled. The Euros was postponed indefinitely. All football stopped and people were forced to stay at home for fear of becoming unwell or worse. As the summer of 2020 went on and football returned, it was announced that Euro 2020 would be held in 2021 and the qualifiers would be played in October and then November behind closed doors. This long delay had in all likelihood increased Scotland's chances of getting through as Steve Clark had more time to find his best team and system and with this, the nation tuned in to see Scotland play on their TVs and radios in October 2020. As a tense 0-0 draw with Israel played out at Hamden, the nation held its breath as the game went to both extra time and then penalties. This was the first ever shootout that Scotland had been involved in. Thankfully, Clark's team held their nerve and scored all five penalties as we prepared for a trip abroad for the final. While many Scotland fans expected Borussia Dortmund's Erling Haaland to fire Norway to victory, it was Serbia who came out on top, and a trip to Belgrade was on the cards. Away from football, after a positive summer, the pandemic was worsening again, and many were preparing for a grim winter. Football for many was an escape from reality, and a welcome break where they could forget about all the bad headlines in the news. As Thursday the 12th of November 2020 approached, Scotland fans were hoping that Steve Clark and his team could give the nation the great lift that it needed. The game in Belgrade that night was entertaining, with both teams creating good opportunities, but Scotland looked the better side. Well, at least that's what I thought anyway, through my tartan-tinted glasses. In the second half, Scotland definitely started the better of the two teams, and after 52 minutes, Ryan Christie scored a momentous goal that had people up and down the country jumping off their settees to celebrate. We were within 38 minutes plus additional time of banishing the hoodoo. Could we do it? The game went on and Scotland had a few more chances, but failed to turn any of them into goals. With minutes to go, Clark decided to go defensive and made changes to try and keep the clean sheet to ensure qualification. In the very last minute of the game, Serbia won a corner after going close, and the corner was met by Real Madrid's Luka Jovic, who headed the ball past the helpless David Marshall. The whole country shook their heads in disbelief. Or rather, if you've supported Scotland for long enough, a range of emotions that translated as disappointed, but not surprised. It was going to have to be done the hard way now, with our main attacking force having gone off, and the half hour of extra time seemed to take an eternity, as we all dreaded a Serbia goal finishing us off and condemning us to yet more misery. Despite Serbia coming far too close for the liking of just about every Scotland fan watching, extra time ended on level terms and it would have to be another shootout to decide the team which would be the very last one on the continent to qualify for the Euros. 
Each penalty came and went in the net. Scotland did their best to hold their nerve and continue the perfect shootout record from the last month, while Serbia tried to upset the party, going past David Marshall each time despite him being unlucky not to save a couple of the efforts. With all eight penalties taken and scored, it effectively came down to sudden death and who blinked first. With Kenny McLean having taken the crucial fifth penalty at Hamden, he stepped up and managed to find the net again. For the tenth penalty, the Serbian stepping up to the spot was their star man, Alexander Mitrovic of Fulham. This was the one man you would expect to score. You'd put your house in him scoring this penalty. At least you would if you were of a Serbian persuasion. Upstep Mitrovic. And David Marshall dived to his left, tipped the shot past the post. As the Scotland players ran up towards the goalie, he looked towards the officials and asked if the game was done, given that VAR would have been checking to see if his foot was on the goal line. It was. And the party had started. Back home, wild celebrations erupted, and I joined friends for an impromptu virtual drink on Zoom that went on just a bit too long for a school night. Mind you, it's not every Thursday night that your country qualifies for its first major tournament in 23 years, is it? Had we lost, I think I would have felt worse than 2007 when Italy did us out of a result. Instead, it felt like the victory brightened up a very gloomy winter and gave everyone something to cling on to throughout the cold, dark nights. As the next few days and weeks went by, the realisation that we were actually going to be part of a major tournament sunk in. When the domestic season ended, the buzz started to amplify itself until you couldn't escape the fact that Scotland were going to play three big games against the Czech Republic, England and Croatia. Better still, despite a maximum crowd size of 12,000 at Hamden for the games there, I had managed to get a ticket for myself and my best pal to go along and see us play in an opener against the Czechs. I also had the privilege of taking a Swiss journalist from the newspaper Neue Zürcher Zeitung of Zurich to the three Hamden parks to explain the history and cultural significance of Glasgow in a footballing sense with one week to go before the first game at Hamden, and by that point the anticipation was almost boiling over. On the morning of the game, I went along to the fan zone at Glasgow Green to appear on an early morning radio broadcast and had planned to go back to sleep afterwards to get some shut-eye before the big game. In the end, I felt like a kid on Christmas morning and ended up being unable to get any real sleep. My mate and I got the train into Queen Street from Partick and walking through George Square to get to Glasgow Central for the Mount Florida train, the city was frantic and full of saltires. It was impossible to escape the chance of, yes sir, I can boogie, and we've got McGinn, Super John McGinn, I just don't think you understand, as well as all the usual Tartan Army chants. Resume to Mount Florida was slightly more subdued compared to some of the trains I've been to games on, but there was still a good atmosphere as we arrived in the south side and made our way to the junction at Cathcart Road and Kermonic Road. With an hour to go until kick-off, the teams were announced and something was wrong. There was no sign of Kieran Tierney anywhere in the team 
despite there being no reports of any injuries to him. The party mood outside the stadium had taken a slight dent, but surely it was nothing too much to worry about. The Czechs were supposed to be the easy team in the group. Surely we're not going to have any problems here. Inside the ground, there may have been less than 10,000 fans, but it sounded incredibly full as Baccarat blared through the PA system. When the teams emerged, Scotland in our traditional dark blue, Czech Republic in their white away kit, the noise was tremendous. The anthems were sung with great gusto, and it was on to the game. Scotland started fairly brightly, but it soon became a fairly even game as the Czechs seemed to have us sussed out. Andy Robertson put a shot just over the crossbar from the left side, and all the Scotland fans groaned as he spurned a fantastic chance that on almost any other day he would have buried. With half-time approaching, Patrick Sheik of the Czech Republic met a ball coming into the box and headed it into the net in front of me. A small corner of Hamden went wild as the Czechs were 1-0 up. We all knew that this hadn't panned out to be the easy game some considered it to be at the start. At half-time, Steve Clark changed his formation and Scotland had more chances. It looked like the introduction of Che Adams from Southampton was going to get us back into the game as we hit the woodwork. But then Jack Hendry tried to play an ambitious cross that deflected off a Czech player. The ball fell to Patrick Sheik once again just inside the Scotland half and with David Marshall so far off his line, Sheik decided to have a pop at a long range looping shot at goal. As the ball was in the air, Marshall raced back towards his goal in a vain attempt to save his bacon, but he only ended up tangled in the back of the net along with the ball. The small section of Czech fans in the northeast corner of the ground were delighted as their players celebrated in front of them, but the rest of the ground, myself included, fell quiet in disbelief. It was as if the positivity of the build-up to the game had been sucked out all at once, and try as Scotland might, the ball just wouldn't go into the net thanks to a combination of poor Scotland finishing and an excellent goalkeeping display from the Czech keeper. It ended Scotland nil, Czech Republic 2, and their next test was arguably our toughest as we travelled down to Wembley to take on the old enemy. In the days leading up to the Wembley clash, the mood seemed to have changed as an England win would leave Scotland all but out of the running for a third place finish that could hopefully take us into the round of 16. A draw or a win would keep our hopes of going further alive. Thousands of Scotland fans went down to London to take in the atmosphere, despite many not having tickets for the game or a pub to watch the game in, given that the usual plan of congregating in Trafalgar Square wouldn't be happening. England had beaten Croatia 1-0 in their first game at Wembley and were in a confident mood after our defeat. Their media were already talking up an England win, but Steve Clark had other ideas. Kieran Tierney was back, having recovered from his injury, and into the team came young Billy Gilmer from Ardrossan. There had been calls for Gilmer to play in previous games, but the young Chelsea star was being thrown into the deep end here. As I watched this game at my local bowling club, there was a slight feeling of dread, almost as if Scotland were going into the lion's den. 
This wasn't helped when England made a good start to the game and Scotland had a big let off as John Stones hit the woodwork. Thereafter, the team seemed to galvanise and Motherwell's Stephen Adoro had one of the best chances of the game to score. His effort on goal came very close and for a split second, everyone seemed to stop breathing. It was goalless at half-time and the game continued to be a relatively even affair in the second half with both teams having chances, but from my biased viewpoint, it was Scotland who were spurning better chances than England. Despite a nervy end to the match, it ended in a goalless draw, with Billy Gilmer's commanding midfield performance earning him the sponsor's Player of the Match award. While some English fans and pundits had a pop at Scotland for celebrating a 0-0 draw, the fact is, this result kept Scotland in the tournament with a chance to still qualify, and it meant more to Scotland fans to wind up our oldest rivals about this result than it did to England. Despite throwbacks to Euro 96 from England in the build-up to this game, and various cries of it's coming home from all around England, in the days between this game and the next one, these mysteriously seemed to stop. I wonder why that was. Going into the final match against Croatia at Hamden, it was a must-win game for Scotland. With results in the other groups having gone our way, a win would take us through. All we had to do was beat the finalists of the last World Cup in Russia. Once again, it wouldn't be like Scotland to do things the easy way, would it? The day before the game, Steve Clark was dealt a blow when Billy Gilmer, fresh from his Man of the Match performance against England, tested positive for Covid and would miss the game. As the Tartan army descended upon Hamden again, there seemed to be a sense of nervous anticipation given what was at stake. Scotland started brightly, forcing a corner with the first action of the game. Despite this, the Croatians came into the game and before too long they led 1-0. Again, the optimism that may have been in the home end seemed to dissipate away into almost nothing. Croatia may have disappointed in the tournament so far, having lost to England and the Czech Republic, but here they seemed up for it and close to their best in this game. Scotland gradually clawed their way back into it though, and with only a few minutes to go until half-time, the breakthrough came. Callum McGregor fired a perfect shot towards goal and try as they might, the Croatian defence and goalkeeper could do nothing to stop it. Hamden finally erupted in celebration as Scotland had got back on a level footing and had scored a goal in a home game at the Euros. Going in level at the break was a huge boost to Clark and his squad. But Croatia came out after half-time looking like a team with a point to prove. In the end, failing to mark Real Madrid's Luka Modric was to prove costly as the ageing midfielder showed every ounce of his class by scoring a long-range effort. David Marshall could do nothing to save the little magician's cuddler and the Scottish crowd started to realise that this was probably going to go down in history as another glorious failure moment. A third Croatia goal meant the score finished Scotland 1, Croatia 3 and the dream was sadly over for another tournament. We may not have been at our best throughout the tournament 
but we had shown some moments of true class that proved we deserved to be at the party in the first place. Even after all that, Hamden wasn't quite finished with the Euros just yet. The stadium was due to host a tie in the round of 16 between Sweden and Ukraine. I was fortunate enough to get a last minute ticket and found myself in the North Stand with mainly Ukrainian fans around me. I was happy enough to cheer for them since their team contained Oleksandr Sinchenko and Ruslan Malinovsky, two of my favourite current players, and their team was managed by the great Andrei Shevchenko. Growing up in the 2000s, Sheva was one of those great players that everybody seemed to like regardless of who they supported, and here was a chance to see the great man manage his country. As the stadium became filled with yellow shirts on both sides, the teams took to the field with Sweden all in yellow and Ukraine all in blue. The game started well, with Ukraine taking the lead through Oleksandr Sinchenko before Emil Forsberg of Sweden grabbed an equaliser before half-time. The second half was less exciting, although you wouldn't have known that from the Ukrainian fans in the east of the stadium constantly sighing for their heroes with chants of Ukraina and even forcing a wave from Andrei Shevchenko in his technical area. With the sky darkening, the game was tied at 1-1 and extra time started in much the same way as the second half had gone. It looked like it would be a dull ending as the game lurched towards penalties in the 99th minute when Marcus Danielson was controversially sent off by a VAR decision, trying to clear the ball but injuring his Ukrainian opponent in the process. Sweden then went on the defensive, trying to shepherd the game towards penalties. Although Ukraine fashioned out some chances after this, myself and most of the people around me were getting ready for a tense shootout. The Ukrainian team had other ideas though, and Artem Dobvik netted in 120 minutes plus one to win the game 2-1. The Ukrainians went wild with delight, and it felt absolutely surreal to go down the front of the stand and be yards away from Shevchenko as he came over with his players and staff to thank the fans for their vocal support throughout the game. And with that, the curtain descended upon the Euros in Glasgow. Looking back on it, going to see your team play in a major tournament is a very special experience, but to be able to do it at your home ground is even more special and it feels surreal that I was able to go to two games. The city had a real, tangible buzz about it that felt fun in a time where normal life had been disrupted beyond almost all recognition. And what's more, it felt great to get back to the football. Since the pandemic started, I've been desperate to go back to games, and I hope that when we're able to get full houses at games again, that people appreciate the experience a lot more. The Czech Republic game in particular was brilliant, with the long build-up to kick off. Had there been a full house at hand in that day, I have absolutely no doubt that it would have been the single best atmosphere I'd ever experienced at a game there. Although UEFA's president has said that the continent-wide approach of hosting the Euros will not happen again due to the logistics of hosting such a huge event across thousands of miles, it was great to have them at Hamden. Hamden Park was the biggest stadium in the world for 47 years after it first opened in 1903 and was made for big games such as these. And you know what? 
I'd absolutely love to see the place host more major international tournaments again. If there's a future British bid for the Euros or a World Cup, I want to see Hamden be a part of it and have some full capacity crowds there. One final note. We may not have won the Euros or come remotely close to doing so, but we can at least say that we did ourselves proud against England as we are one of only two sides who weren't beaten by the losing finalists throughout the tournament and we were the only side not to concede a goal to them. Here's the Euro 2020. We'll be back. At the start of the podcast, we asked you if it was true or false that all of Scotland's goals at European Championships have been scored by players with surnames starting with Mick. The answer is true. At Euro 92, our goal scorers were Paul McStay, Brian McClare and Gary McAllister. At Euro 96, our only goal scorer was Ali McCoist. And at Euro 2020, it was Callum McGregor who scored the only goal of our tournament. Who knows who will be the next goal scorer for Scotland at the Euros. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Scottish Football Citizen. Subscribe to us on your favourite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. And join us again next week when we'll be looking back at more of the best of Scottish football from the past. If you'd like an extra football fix in your inbox every Tuesday, you can subscribe to Football Memories Scotland's weekly newsletter, The Football Special, and receive an email full of excellent pictures and stories from days gone by. To find out more, email lindsay at lindsay.hamilton at scottishfootballmuseum.org.uk The Scottish Football Citizen is written, edited and produced by Andy Kerr for Football Memories Scotland in association with Alzheimer Scotland and the Scottish Football Museum. Additional contributions from Robert Harvey, Jim Orr, Lindsay Hamilton and Richard McBearty. <laughs>